let's, let's see here. So he and his wife, Liz, uh, and their four kids have been a part of our church for a while. Uh, tonight's speaker is kind of a big sports guy. He's somewhat competitive. Uh, if you know him, uh, you might know that he won um, a, an actual collegiate national championship uh, when he was in college, but it was lacrosse, so nobody cares. Uh, I mean, right? I mean, it's might as well be Quidditch. Uh, so, so that's that's interesting about him. Even though he's super, you know, competitive and all of that, on his first date with his wife, uh, he lost to her in a game of one-on-one, and to this day has never beaten her in a game of horse. Um, something though that he has exceeded his wife in, um, he is a self-proclaimed fashionista, and his closet is bigger than hers. And y'all, that's, sadly, that's not the worst thing. So you've probably noticed that we kind of introduced these guys and some of what we're doing is having a little bit of fun and some of what we're doing is kind of poking at them and roasting them. But I'm about to ask y'all to do something that I, as far as I know has never been done in the history of Thursday night Bible study. So the next thing that I'm about to say about this man, I want y'all to boo as loudly as, as you may boo. Because the, the, the sad reality, and had we known this, we maybe wouldn't have asked him to speak. This man lives in Houston. His job is here. His family is here. He's making a life here. And you would think that his allegiances in Major League Baseball would be to the world champion Houston Astros. But instead, he is, uh, wait for it, y'all, it gets worse. He's a Yankees fan. So hopefully we've gotten under his skin. Uh, never trust a man with two first names. Let's welcome Mark Wade. This is good. This is good. All of those things are more true about me than I would like them to be. Uh, not the least of which was upon moving to Houston and telling somebody that I did play lacrosse in college, they very legitimately and honestly said, that's like field hockey, right? It's like, sure. Uh, well, jokes aside, I just want to express my gratitude to this church. Liz and I have been going here for about 10 years now, and, and you've walked through life with us, uh, our highest highs and our lowest lows, and I'm just so deep, deeply grateful to all of you. Um, thank you for the way that you bless us. Um, tonight, we're going to be in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, that's verses 4 through 9, so if you could please turn now. You know, the Bible is full of many familiar stories, and these stories are a part of both mainstream culture and Christian culture. Some of these stories would be Adam and Eve in the garden, or Moses parting the Red Sea, David slaying Goliath. And these stories are very useful in understanding the broader narrative of the Bible. And the Bible is also full of many unfamiliar stories that often don't get discussed as much. So what are we to do with those stories? Do we ignore them because they're sort of strange and not easily understood? These unfamiliar stories are just as important to understanding the full biblical narrative as the familiar ones are. 
You know, in that vein, I'd be willing to bet good money that if I were to pull this population or another one and ask, what's the most familiar verse in the New Testament, I'd probably get a pretty close consensus that it's John 3.16, right? You know, the one, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life. But I'm willing to bet my dollars to your dimes that the vast majority of people, whether you're a Christian or not, don't actually understand and know the full context of that verse. Who was the conversation between? Who said it? Who received it? Tonight, we're going to build the foundation to better understand arguably the most familiar verse in the New Testament by looking at a most unfamiliar story and see how the unfamiliar stories can actually help us better understand something we think we know really well. Pray with me here. Father, we come before you with praise and thanksgiving for this opportunity to study your word, but more than that, to get to know you better and to see the story that you have written since time began of your great love for us and redeeming us to yourself. Holy Spirit, I pray you come into this place, open the hearts and mind of your people to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Please read along with me. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the, Lord, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So what did we just read? This is a very strange passage. It's a pretty good example of how you can read the Bible and draw the completely incorrect conclusion about what it's actually saying. I guess what I'm asking is, is this just another weird story in a collection of weird stories that make up the Bible? Or is there a, a meta-narrative here that we need to try to see? I'm going to start with the first sentence of verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So what's happening here? A bit of context. The Israelites are probably in their last year of wandering around in the desert. We're here at the end of this summer series. The Israelites have reached pretty much the end of their, their wandering. It's been 40 years since they left Egypt. And they've asked the king of this place called Edom for safe passage. They want to go through it because it's basically a shortcut to get into the promised land. And he says, nope. So they have to go around. And to put this in our terms, it'd be like trying to go to San Antonio and instead of just driving down the street here and getting on I-10 and straight shot down into San Antonio, it's like going up 45, going to Waco, and then back down through Austin just to get to San Antonio. This is a very roundabout way. So they have to keep wandering, and they've been wandering for 40 years. So what are we to do when we find ourselves in a season of wandering? So let's try to think of maybe a few examples of what wandering might look like today. 
Maybe you're an Aggie. Oh, yeah. And you've been wandering in the wilderness of high expectation and low achievement in college football for some time. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Or maybe, maybe you're a Longhorn. And you've also been wandering in the same wilderness of high expectation and low achievement for some time. Or maybe you're wandering in your career. Maybe you're in a job where you feel like you're not going anywhere. Or you don't have a job and you've been looking for one, but it feels like wilderness. This takes us to our first application tonight. If you're in a season that feels like this kind of wandering, where things just aren't going how you want them to or how you expect them to, stop, look backwards, and look forwards. Look backwards. Maybe you're dealing with the consequences of some decisions you made recently or even a long time ago. The Israelites are wandering here not because the king of Edom says, no, you can't come through. They're wandering because of their sin 40 years in the past. They doubted God's direction to take the promised land right away. We're going to hear in Numbers chapter 21. If you go back to Numbers 13 and 14, we see how the Israelites basically chickened out they had the opportunity to come right out of Egypt, go right into the promised land. They didn't do it. So then, look forward to see if in your wandering, you're wandering because you're going the wrong way and you're not willing to give up the controls. You may be wandering because you're pursuing something or someone that's outside of God's will for you. So oftentimes, we find ourselves in a season of wandering because our sin often leads us into a place where God never intended us to go. But it's hard to have this perspective in these moments, right? It's hard to stop and consider whether we should ask for directions when sometimes we feel like we're the only ones around and there's, there's nobody to talk to. I mean, it is wilderness after all. So let's see how the Israelites handled their continued wandering. We're going to pick it up in the second sentence of verse 4 through verse 6. Please read with me. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So by being told no by the king of Edom, they must go through even more desert. It's blazing hot. There's little or no water. They're eating the same simple food every day. They sound like children, don't they? You're not feeding us anything, but we don't like the food that you are feeding us. There's dangerous creatures, leopards and Arabian cobras and something that's actually called a death stalker scorpion. This is just too much. Enough is enough. Let's go back to Egypt. Throwing in the towel. This brings us to our second application tonight. Our circumstances are not an excuse to sin. And this is a tough one for our society, generally speaking, and it's a tough one for me personally. How quickly are we to point out that the reason for our sin is our environment? The problem's out there. It's not me. I did it because of these reasons. You know, I identify with the Israelites in a pretty big way. When I'm not mentally prepared to be uncomfortable, I have a hard time being uncomfortable. And when I'm circumstantially uncomfortable, meaning my physical state is unpleasant, my propensity for sin, it goes up. When I'm tired or stressed or hungry, 
or restless. I'm a worse version of me. And I'll say or do things that I wouldn't do when I'm rested and rejuvenated. And the Israelites, in their discomfort, spoke against God and Moses. They questioned, not respectfully, seeking understanding, but in a challenging way, as if they knew better. Read back through the, through the book of Exodus and Numbers, and you'll see over a dozen instances where the Israelites essentially revolt against God and his will because they're not getting what they wanted when they wanted it. God invites us into a beautiful relationship with him, but it's not on our terms. We don't get to define this relationship and what he will do. He gets to do that because he's God and we are not. So let me give you a couple of places that I was personally convicted on this topic, and maybe you can identify with one. I'll lose my patience with my children because sometimes they're just a little too loud and I'm a little too tired. But what's the root cause here? It's that I'm selfish, that I want what I want, when I want it. Or I'll fail to fully own my mistakes at work because I'm worried that if I admit it, I'll never live it down. I'm too worried about my reputation. And the root is that I'm sometimes insecure about where my identity really lies. But you may struggle with other sins because of your circumstances. Maybe you find yourself in situations where most of the folks around you are drinking more than you know you should and maybe even you want to, but you do it anyways. Now, I'm not saying drinking is bad. Drinking is not bad. Drinking to excess is bad. But the root cause here is that you care more about what these people think of you and what God thinks of you. Or maybe you're dating someone and you're pushing limits physically that you shouldn't be. Maybe you guys even ask each other, where's the line? What's the most we can do without crossing it? The root here is actually a weird form of legalism, of hiding behind perceived rules. Try asking this question instead. How can we glorify God the most with our bodies while we're dating? All of these things and many more is, is just our way of thinking that we're somewhat justified in our behavior, at least for the season of life that we're in. Explain the circumstances. It's their fault. But you may be saying to yourself, sure, Mark, I get it. They talk back to God. They talk back to Moses. But isn't this a dramatic overreaction? I mean, they're stumbling around in the desert. They've got little kids. They've got old ones. No supplies. Just a little burnt out, Right? Is all that really worth sending venomous snakes to bite and kill the people? Well, it takes us to application number three. God sees the severity of our sin very differently than we do, and he responds very differently to the severity of our sin than we do. Consider the following scene. It's a routine enough day, three o'clock in the afternoon hits, you get a headache. Maybe you've had too much caffeine. Maybe not enough caffeine. Maybe you're dehydrated, or you've just been staring at a computer screen all day. You pop your go-to over-the-counter pain reliever, 20 minutes later, headache goes away, you feel better. No big deal. Or, you get this headache every day, and you constantly ignore it. You've had this headache for weeks, and months, and years, but you brush it under the rug. You don't tell anybody. You act like it's not a big deal, because to you, it's not. But what if the headache is much more serious? Sometimes symptoms that appear mild 
are indicators of a far greater and more deadly disease. Sometimes the swift, invasive, and often harsh interventions save you from something that you didn't even realize was a problem a few moments ago. Headaches can be simple headaches, but sometimes they can be brain cancer. Only an experienced practitioner has the skills and knowledge to properly diagnose and treat a simple headache or a glioblastoma. The point is this, God's the only one who can see the severity of what's happening. He's the only one with the advanced imaging systems to see through the surface and know what's actually going on. He has the cutting edge therapies to remove the cancer without destroying the body, saving the patient. This sin, like all sin, is cancer. God needs to do something dramatic, swift, and at the surface level, harshly punitive to cut it out. So what does he do? He sends snakes. So let's talk about these snakes for a minute because they are more than just the tool of God's judgment of sin. You know, the word here in Hebrew, it actually isn't snake. It translates as fiery one. It's seraph. Seraph is the same root that's used to form the word seraphim. It's the type of angel that when seen, it appears as if they're on fire. So really this is, this is just saying they're, they're fiery snakes. And the bite of these fiery snakes has two characteristics. It's the first one. You develop this raging fever. You feel like you're burning up from the inside. And the second is that you developed an unquenchable thirst that no matter how much you drank, you were never quenched. Then you died. Consider the allegory. The Israelites have spoken against God and against Moses that they know better, should have stayed in Egypt. It's not the first time that they've done this. A lot of guys have stood up here and talked about this exact issue a number of times throughout the summer. So consider how appropriate this judgment actually is. The Israelites complain about being thirsty, and he says, you think you're thirsty, and your solution is to go back to Egypt? You don't even know how thirsty you are. But I'll show you. Don't miss the point here, because it's so relevant for me Mark Wade, for us, Grace Bible Church, here in Houston, Texas, the United States of America. Our belief that we know better is a deadly sin spreading through our bodies. Culture screams to us that we know what's best for us. How's that going for you? Have you found your truth yet? Are you still looking for it? This notion that we know better or are capable of getting ourselves to where God wants us to be is a direct affront to the power and sovereignty of God. It robs him of his glory and it ultimately hurts us. In short, that's sin. If you're like me, you live daily with the reminders of the poor decisions you've made in life as you've bathed in your perceived self-reliance and self-actualization. Let me speak to you from my heart for a minute. On March 20th of 2022, I was driving a Polaris Ranger out at my in-laws ranch. Um, and for those of you who don't know, a Ranger is a, it's a big utility vehicle, use it to get around ranch properties. This is not a, this is not a, a, a four by four, I mean a four wheeler. Um, this, this is a 2,000 pound machine. And on that machine were my son Walker 
my sister, and three of her kids. And through physics that I still can't totally reconcile, as I was driving, the ranger fell on its left side, throwing me out. I was dragged quite a ways under the Polaris, burning a large portion of my skin on my legs off, and the roll cage of the Polaris landed across my left femur and snapped it in half. I spent a week in the hospital, weeks confined to my bed, and those first few months were full of excruciating pain and on top of that, abject humiliation. In the dead of one night, while I was still physically unable to move on my own, I woke up from the intensity of the pain and a hard time falling back asleep. So I'm laying there in bed and I'm staring up at the ceiling. My wife Liz is laying next to me and a terribly uncomfortable thought enters my brain. If someone, really anyone, broke into my house that night, I would be powerless to stop them from doing whatever they wanted to my wife and four little children. I have never felt so vulnerable in my life. And after a few moments of what I can only describe as utter fearfulness, another thought came into my head and said, Mark, you have always been this vulnerable. You have always needed me to protect you and to provide for you. Now you are starting to see. You need to learn something about me that took 35 years for me to learn about myself. I had this misplaced confidence, despite the introduction given there, <laughs> rooted in the belief that I was one of the most physically capable people in the room. You know, I was an athlete, and I used my body as a way to gain a sense of achievement and status and worth in this world. And I did. More recently in life, I thought I could protect my family, at least for a moment while they could escape to safety or something like that. Seems a bit silly now. But I thought it was ultimately about me. I put myself in the center of the story. I don't know about you, but I can be pretty stubborn. It would have been gentler for me to have read about these ideas in some quiet time and then just sort of mentally decided to live differently. If you're like me, you can be slow to obey God's word. I didn't get the message, so God, in his loving grace, stepped up the volume. He did it to the Israelites as well. You've got to make a change, God's saying. If you don't, what comes next is this intense pressure. It's this pressure on yourself to, to provide, to protect, to, to seek more, to have more, to do more. It's a raging fever and a burning thirst. And a spoiler, folks, you can't do it. You can't quench it. Do you know this? Do I know this? God allowed something really painful, disruptive, and frankly terrifying to happen to me because he wanted to cut out a cancer before it spread any further. The cancer was this notion that I don't need him unconditionally, unquestionably, and unendingly in every aspect of my life. Not just the big things, everything. The snakes came from me on March 20th of last year, and I have over a dozen scars on my leg from the multiple surgeries I've had trying to put it back together. God singled me out. He had seen enough, and he was ready to intervene. I mentioned there were six people on that Polaris. 
All five of them were miraculously wearing their seatbelts. I wasn't. All five walked away unscathed. I didn't. If that roll cage would have hit anywhere else on my body, the doctor said it would have caused permanent and catastrophic damage. You see, it hit the one spot that's the strongest, the bone that's the strongest, the femur. If it would have hit eight to 10 inches lower, I would have lost my left leg below the knee. My spine, probably paralyzed. My head, I'm told I would have died. You see, God allowed these things to happen only to me. And my injuries were significant, but only up until a point and no further past that. No, no, this, this is too specific. This was orchestrated. God's loving hand was over all of it. He wanted me. He wanted the Israelites. He wants you. Now, I'm not making myself the hero of this story. I am not the hero. God is the hero. I'm the Israelites. God has shown me that I desperately need him in ways that I never knew I was needful. I need him to put food on my family's table. I need him to protect them. I need him for all of it. And praise God, the story doesn't end here for me, and God's people aren't left to be consumed by snakes in the desert. God doesn't leave you, me, or the Israelites fending for ourselves, hanging in the wind. So let's read what comes next. Let's pick it up in verse 7. We're going to go through 9. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So there's two key points happening here that I want to highlight for small instruction when we first find ourselves in the position of the person who has been sinned against like Moses, and second, when we're the Israelites and we're behaving incongruent with God's will. Verse 5 says, the people spoke against Moses. They're talking bad about him, accusing him, questioning his judgment. He spent the last 40 years of his life serving this people, and this is the thanks that he gets. Put yourself in his position. How would you feel when they nitpick your decisions or question your intentions when you're just trying to help? Maybe they comment about a decision you made recently or how you handled a challenging time in life or how you embarrassed yourself by oversharing in a room full of nice people about how bad of a Polaris driver you are. <laughs> Takes us to the fourth application tonight. How often are we willing to go before the Lord on their behalf for the people who we think are harming us? How quickly do we lift up those who just a moment ago were against us? Here we have God's people infected with venomous snakes, burning with fever and thirst and dying. In their moment of pain, they cry out to Moses and the Lord, and they ask Moses to intervene on their behalf as he has done again and again and again, and we get a master class in servant leadership from Moses again. I say again because the pattern throughout all of these instances has been the Israelites turning away from God and Moses is there, contending on their behalf with the Almighty. The text literally says repeatedly, falling on his face for them. So here's another question for you. You pray for the poor. But do you pray for the wicked? Forget about that for a moment. 
How often are we willing to pray for those people who maybe even just mildly frustrate us on a relatively consistent basis? Do you have a sibling or a relative that just gets under your skin with the way they talk or act? Do you have a boss or a coworker that just grinds your gears? How about this one? If you voted for the candidate that lost in the last election, are you praying for the current elected officials of our city and our state and our country? My charge to you is to take your anger, your frustration, and your disappointment with your circumstances to the Lord. Don't tweet. Don't post. No hot take text messages to the group thread. Pray to the sovereign God of the universe for the very people you feel are against you. Just as Jesus did from the cross when he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. So let's start to put a bow on this and stick with me because things are going to get even more interesting. So how does God respond to Moses' request? He says, make a snake, put it on a pole, stick it up in the air. Anyone who's been bitten can look at it and live. It's a very strange remedy to this situation. You know, snakes have always had this very negative connotation in, in culture. Our culture, Hebrew culture, especially Hebrew culture, even to the point of being the embodiment of sin. I mean, think back to the Garden of Eden, right? What God's doing is he's saying, look at your sin. Look at what's causing you this pain. Acknowledge it's your sin, not mine, not Moses's. It's yours. And then what? Perform some kind of ritual to purify yourself? Rub it seven times as the sun is setting? No, just look. The Bible says anyone who looked lived. So that's what God asked them to do, to look at the embodiment of their sin and live. Look and live. So if the Israelites look to this bronze serpent, what are we supposed to look at? How do we look at our sin today? Should we come up with some kind of 21st century version of a bronze serpent? No. I mentioned at the beginning of this talk that we would learn the foundation for the most familiar verse in the New Testament, John 3:16. In a moment, I'm going to say for you John 3:14, 15 and 16. Before I do that, a little bit of background about John 3. It's a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Many of you probably know who Nicodemus is. You've heard his name before. He made an appearance in The Chosen. He was a Pharisee, but he wasn't just any old Pharisee. He was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. He had the title of the teacher of Israel. And what that means is that this man knew as much or more about the Hebrew Bible as anybody alive. And that's who Jesus is talking to when he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So do you see it yet? Do you see what God wrote into history thousands of years before Jesus even walked the earth? In the context of a conversation with this man, Nicodemus, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. 
I'm going to try to lay this out for you as plainly as I can. Jesus puts himself in the place of the bronze snake. And everyone else, that's us, in the place of the Hebrews. God provides the way out for the Hebrews with the bronze snake, and he provides the way out for us with Jesus. Neither the Hebrews nor us do anything to earn our salvation. So if Jesus is the snake, what does that mean? It means he became sin. He became the embodiment of sin. That same sin that caused the bite, the snakes to bite, that creates the unquenchable thirst. That's why in John 19, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he cries out, I thirst. He didn't just want water. He was experiencing cosmic thirst from the separation of God. The bronze snake is put on a wooden pole and lifted high up in the air for everyone to clearly see. Jesus is nailed to a wooden cross and lifted high up in the air for everyone to clearly see. If snakes are God's way of turning up the volume to the Israelites, then Jesus on the cross is the loudest PA system this world has ever seen. Snakes were the curse in Numbers 21, and Jesus became the curse so we wouldn't be cursed. Now, if we're the Hebrews and their healing came from looking at the bronze snake, then we have to look at Jesus. As he said, whoever believes in him, looks to Jesus on the cross, will live. God tells Moses that anyone who looks at the bronze snake will be healed and not die. Jesus tells Nicodemus that anyone who looks to the Son of Man will be healed and not die. To the point we talked about earlier about how much looking do we have to do, we don't have to look a long time. We don't have to look with special optical instruments. We don't have to look and do something else. We just have to look. And the look here, and the word here for look implies belief. Take comfort in knowing that for salvation, you just have to look. You have to believe that Jesus is the one who brings the healing, that he died for your sins. If you're here tonight and you're feeling like the Israelites, you're thirsting for something more, but you never seem to get there. If you feel like you're being consumed from the inside out, as I often do, look to Jesus and be quenched. And if you've already looked once, keep looking. Fix your eyes on Jesus every day. Numbers 21, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the entire meta-narrative of this Bible is not about condemnation or judgment. It's not about snakes. It's about love and restoration. God provides the way for our restoration, and Jesus invites us into a life with him that is more abundantly full than anything we could ever imagine, y'all. I'm going to conclude with a short story. It's about a young man at a time in his life and in his Christian walk when he's trying to figure out what he really believes. He hasn't totally bought in yet, and he's holding something back, but he's not even sure exactly what that is. There's probably a few people here tonight who fit that definition, and it might even be why you're here. So our young man goes out for the evening to an, to an evening appointment, and as he goes along, a, a big snowfall comes in, and the snowfall is so significant he can't keep going, and he, and he ducks into a church. And the minister of the church can't get to the church because the snowfall is so bad, and there's a congregation that happens to have gathered. And so a regular person gets up out of the crowd and stands in the pulpit and starts to preach out of Isaiah chapter 45. And the text says, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Does that sound familiar? So this preacher continued, 
This is a simple text. It says, look. Looking doesn't take a lot of work. It's just looking. You don't need a fancy degree. You can be pretty simple-minded, actually, and look. You don't need a lot of money. Anybody can look. Heck, even kids can look. He continues by pointing out that the text says, look unto me, look unto the Lord. A lot of folks look to themselves. I've talked here tonight about how that doesn't work out so well. And we can look at all sorts of things. But the text says, look unto me. After the preacher had, after the preacher had calmed down a bit, he looked down at this young man that our story centers on, and he says to him, you look miserable. And you'll always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death. If you don't obey this text, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. The young man in this story is the very familiar 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Folks, the invitation to Charles that night, it's the same invitation to all of us. And it's the same invitation tonight. Look to Jesus. Look and live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story that you're telling us about how much you love us and the great lengths you've gone to to redeem us back to yourself. Lord, help us to look at you, to keep our eyes fixed on you, and to not waver. Help me to do that, Lord, every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.